Wim Hof is used to being watched. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for looking at me. Hoff, who's from the Netherlands, is standing on the TEDx stage in Amsterdam, naked but for a pair of swim trunks. To his side is a big clear box. He climbs up a stepladder, then lowers himself in, and over the course of several minutes, TEDx technicians dump in shaved ice, packing it in until it's up to his chin. Hoff has done this before. He calls himself the Iceman for his ability to withstand extreme cold. But he's got other tricks, too. Wim Hof has defied logic time and time again, and always under scientific scrutiny. He holds the world record for being able to be submerged in ice for almost two hours without his core body temperature changing. He's climbed Mount Everest in nothing but a pair of shorts and ran a marathon in the desert without drinking any water. That's from a special on Vice. To date, Hoff has broken more than 25 world records, including the farthest swim under ice, 57 and a half meters, 188 feet. And there you go. He's made it. Absolutely astounding. Researchers have studied him, trying to understand how he can handle such extreme conditions. Here, researchers at a university in the Netherlands record Hoff's vital signs as he stands in a box like the one on the TEDx stage. A normal person would experience frostbite or hypothermia if they were packed practically naked in ice. But Hoff's core temperature doesn't even drop a degree. There's a secret behind his superpower, or actually not a secret, because he's happy to tell anyone who will listen. He shares it in a Eurovision song from the UK this year called My Last Breath. The breath is the life force. If you control the life force, the force of life is with you. And there is nothing that can stop you. Yep, Hoff gets his power from breathing. He learned an ancient Tibetan deep breathing technique called tumo, which means inner fire, for the way it warms your body. Researchers have confirmed that tumo breathing, combined with regular exposure to the cold, releases hormones like adrenaline and cortisol that help our bodies handle stress. Hoff claims his breathing methods can also tame anxiety and depression and even help fight Lyme disease. Who knew mastering something we do 25,000 times a day could lead to such extraordinary things? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. I founded the Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant to connect people to some of the boldest thinking shaping our culture and our future. Each week on the podcast, we bring you one idea with the power to change the way you see the world. This week, the extraordinary power of breath. We don't usually think a lot about breathing. It just kind of happens. But in the last few months, this most unconscious of activities has been front of mind for nearly all of us. 
first with the coronavirus, which travels on our breath and attacks the lungs, and which shows just how much depends on our ability to take in and expel air several times every minute. The masks we all wear are a constant reminder of that. And then with the killing of George Floyd, choked to death by a police officer in Minneapolis. The killing launched worldwide protests in part because of the symbolic power of the act, a white authority figure depriving an unarmed black man of air. The protesters' slogan, I can't breathe, is more than just a reference to Floyd's killing or to the killing of Eric Garner in 2014. It's a cry for the basic human right to live because breathing is life. Today, we're gonna to talk with James Nestor, who's been thinking nonstop about breathing for the past several years. James is a science journalist who's written for Scientific American, Outside Magazine, and the New York Times. In his 2014 book, Deep, Nestor immersed himself in the high-risk world of free diving, where competitors plunge hundreds of feet beneath the ocean surface on a single breath of air. Reporting on free divers set him on a path to his new book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. In Breath, Nestor talks with experts and surveys the latest science, but he also puts himself through a series of extreme challenges to better understand the power of conscious breathing. What he discovers just might take your breath away. James Nestor, I'm so excited to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. There's sort of a category of things that I have not yet learned how to do well, right? There are things like juggling and solving the Rubik's Cube, and it's, it's a very long list of things. And then I have in my mind the category of things that, that I think I'm pretty good at, right? Like sleeping, parallel parking, you know, a handful of things I think I'm pretty good at. I had breathing in the second category until I read your book. And now I've realized that there's yet another thing that I need to go back to the drawing board and figure out. <laughs> so that, that's a little humbling. Yeah, that was the intention to make people feel really bad. Uh, number one, off right off the bat. Number two, it wasn't at all. I was just like you several years ago. I thought that breathing was something that was just a regular unconscious autonomic function. I never thought too much about it until I started meeting researchers who showed me, demonstrated that both I and the vast majority of the population is breathing wrong to our detriment. Well, James, you have had such an interesting journey and some would say a counterintuitive journey, right? Starting as a, I think in advertising and then freelance writing. Share with us how you landed on this fascinating topic. Yeah, so I used to be a very, you know, respectable citizen of, of the world. I had a real job, wore a suit and all that stuff. I wrote copy, wrote for catalogs, wrote ads uh, for various companies for, for years and years. And finally, just on, on weekends, I would write magazine stories because I loved the process. So one of the big breaks I got was, this was many years ago, I was sent by Outside Magazine to write about the World Freediving Championships, which is this very strange competition in which these divers challenge one another to see how deep they can dive in the ocean and come back to the surface still conscious. If that sounds dangerous, it's because it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these people are making these dives at 300, 400 feet on a single breath of air. I'd never seen anything like it before. Luckily, I was at this competition, was able to meet some photographers and other journalists who were free divers. And they said, this competition stuff, this isn't free diving. There's this whole other side of free diving that doesn't involve challenging one another to see how deep you can dive, but it involves connecting with the water 
with your own body with other oceanic animals to have these mm. experiences and to dive oh. under your your own will and that appealed to me so much more it was an underwater yoga or meditation they said mm. So it was within this group that I really learned the art of, of breathing, um, or I was introduced to it. I hadn't quite learned it yet. So they had managed to breathe in ways to expand their lung capacity and to do something that was considered scientifically impossible. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, the benefits of breathing this way, they extend beyond just diving deep. They extend to land as well. We can use breathing to switch our moods. We can use them to switch the way our bodies feel. And in some extraordinary cases, we can use them to help heal ourselves of disease. And finally, I had enough of these stories that I, I set out to go into the field and started at labs with researchers because I needed to know that this stuff was real. And I found enough researchers and enough research to find that that it was, and so much of that story hadn't really been told in a specific way. Like, there are so many books on how to breathe properly, just with instructions. There's dozens and dozens of books, and some of them are a thousand years old. Mm. But I didn't find that there were too many books on on why you want to breathe that way, what happens, where these stories come from. You know, that deeper, more immersive story, and that's what I spent several years doing. At the top of the show, we heard the story of Wim Hof. The Iceman, who has done all these extraordinary feats, he's a particularly colorful example of what's possible with breathing control. Wim started doing some incredible things about 20 years ago through breathing. So he ran a half marathon, you know, up around Everest. He sat in a, in a big tub of ice for two hours and his core temperature didn't change. He didn't get frostbite. And our understanding of medicine is this stuff is impossible. You can't do this. And later on, they found that he was able to control his autonomic nervous system and his immune response through breathing. And so now Wim and his minions are showing this, showing these impossible things. They're healing themselves of autoimmune diseases. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So I really credit him with getting the, the word out about the true human potential of breathing. Wim was not the first to discover this, right? There were Tibetan monks that have been practicing some of these exercises, right? Melting snow with naked bodies for millennia, right? Yeah. Wim, you know, luckily he discovered all this in the media age where you could see it in real life, see it on video, where you can measure it. But his breathing practice, and he's been very honest about this. He's like, yeah. I did not invent this stuff. This stuff has been around for at least a thousand years. There was the first documented evidence is this guy Naropa, who you know went off on a on a pilgrimage to become enlightened and was getting really cold up in the Himalayas and learned this breathing technique to stay warm. And we're like, ah, oh, that's a thousand years ago. They're probably making it up. So about a hundred years ago, Alexandra David Neal, this Belgian French anarchist opera singer went off on her own spiritual journey for 14 years, discovered the exact same breathing technique. And again, people are like, yeah, sure. You know, there was no, no media following her around to prove it. And so finally in the 80s, Herbert Benson at Harvard Medical School had heard enough of these stories. He's like, forget it. We, we need to actually test this. And he went up, found some monks who had mastered this tumor breathing, and lo and behold, 
All of these stories ended up being true. These people were able to do things that were considered medically impossible. They raised the temperature of their fingertips by 17 degrees, dry a wet sheet on their back in a cold room in a half an hour. I mean, and there's videotape of this. You can, you can see it on YouTube or wherever else. So this stuff is real. It's, it's been so hard for us to get our heads around it, but it's real. And now we have measurements, and, and WIM is really showing, again, how real it is and how it can be applied. And so would you say that um, we made the case in a prior episode about friendship, the author Lydia Denworth made the case that we should think of, as we think about the importance of exercise and diet in health and longevity, we should consider relationships and community to be every bit as important as health and diet. Would you make the case that breathing deserves to be right up there with eating habits and exercise in terms of how profound an impact it has on health and longevity? It has to be. You think of people, some of the healthiest, who are considered some of the healthiest people. You see these weightlifters, these huge buff dudes. They're all oiled up, and you're like, wow, this guy's superhuman. Those guys all the time are dying in their 40s and 50s because they can't breathe properly wow. because they have so many muscles around. Huh. They have sleep apnea. They have hypertension. They have all these other problems associated with breathing, which is one of the reasons why you see them and their necks crane forward and out. Mm. If you think about someone being administered CPR, first thing an ENT is going to do is going to turn that neck up to open the airway. But that's what we're doing now just to get a, a breath of fresh air into our bodies. So you say that we have all these impediments to proper breathing. Is there clear evidence in the medical records of some kind of serious crisis about how we breathe today? I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of listeners thinking like, I breathe fine, well, where's the problem? Well, you can just look at the numbers. And this is one of the first questions I had for these researchers. I was like, you can't honestly be telling me this, that I'm breathing improperly. And almost everyone I know is breathing improperly. And we've just never known this. Then they showed me the facts. So about half of us snore. So that's, that's a pretty large amount of people. About a quarter of us suffer from sleep apnea, which is that nighttime asphyxiation of the tongue flopping back in the throat. Snoring and sleep apnea are so damaging to both mental and physical health, and no one's going to refute that right now. 25 million Americans have asthma. I think uh, 25 million also have COPD. I mean, I can, I can keep going autoimmune diseases. So mm. these conditions can either be greatly exacerbated or in some cases caused by improper breathing. And if you look at all the health conditions that are attached to sleep apnea alone, You've got hypertension, heart failure, even diabetes, other metabolic problems. I mean, neurological problems. It goes on and on and on. And again, no one's going to refute that. It's just few people are looking at how breathing is involved in all these things, even though breathing is with sleep apnea and snoring, it's all about breathing. So I also learned that most mammals are very good at breathing. They breathe comfortably. They don't snore. They don't choke on a piece of asparagus. <laughs> but starting a couple million years ago, Homo erectus screwed it up by growing ever larger brains. What a mistake that was, right? <laughs> that, and I guess, I mean, this was part of the issue is that extraordinary growth of our brains displace some of what were breathing passages. Is that is that right? Yeah. So we started processing food. And by that, I mean, we started tenderizing prey, which released more calories. Mm -hmm. And so our brains had this extra energy 
and used these calories to grow larger. And it needed real estate, so it took it from the front of our faces. So if you look at these different human species from a million years ago, 500,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, they look completely different. Like our faces have been growing narrower and narrower and narrower ever since. We used to have these huge noses with nostrils that were you know, faced outward instead of downward. And these very wide faces, enormous teeth, because we were just grinding away all day, every day, four hours a day, just chewing on everything. So the more we started processing food from tenderizing it to actually cooking it, that dates back to about 800,000 years ago, we started cooking food and fire, more and more energy, brain grew larger and larger, faces grew flatter, mouths grew smaller. Now we did just fine with this because these changes were occurring over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. So we adapted to them just fine, but it became a huge problem when we started processing everything, taking the German brand from rice, just eating white rice, pulverizing mm -hmm. wheat into flour, sugars, all of the foods that we started eating on a, on a grand scale back then that we're still eating today have really created a mouth that's too small for our faces and too small for our airways. And that's one of the main reasons that so many of us suffer from so many breathing difficulties today. And you say that of the 5,400 different species of mammals on the planet, humans are the only ones to routinely have misaligned jaws, overbites, underbites, and snaggled teeth. I think you've described me quite well. And myself, I'll have you know, yeah. <laughs> and James, in your passionate commitment to the cause of better breathing, which includes breathing mostly through the nose, you volunteered yourself as a guinea pig to test the dangerous impact of mouth breathing for 10 consecutive days. Can you tell us the story? This is quite remarkable. So I had been having many conversations with the chief of rhinology research at Stanford. I'm in San Francisco, so Stanford's very close and has a wonderful medical library. And we would have these long lunches and he would be telling me about all these wonders of the nose and all of the problems associated with mouth breathing. And I said, well, have you tested the, the problems associated with mouth breathing? And in his words, he's like, no, I can't do that. It would be unethical knowing what I know about mouth breathing to have people do this. So I volunteered for an experiment. I convinced him to do an experiment. He could not find funding. So he's like, you're going to have to pay for it. And it was not cheap at all. <laughs> but but uh, uh, me, me and one other... Um, this guy, this breathing therapist from Sweden had been teaching people for 10 years the benefits of nasal breathing, the hazards of mouth breathing. He said, I better put my money where my mouth is and flew out here to Stanford to spend a month and to do this study. And the short version is we had silicon up our noses for 10 days and we were testing ourselves. We had a lab here set up at my house. We also did tests down at Stanford just to see what was happening to our bodies. So we did this and it was so much more damaging than anyone ever thought. You know, not everything changed, but the big ones did. My blood pressure just immediately went through the roof. Both he and I started snoring. We went from not snoring at all, a couple minutes a night, immediately snoring. Within a few days, we were both snoring through half the night. We both got sleep apnea. I mean, I could go down this laundry list of problems, but uh, it was so immediate. And the, the good part is the second part of that study where 
we removed all that silicon and, and crud from our noses and we're just able, we focused on just breathing through our noses instead of our mouths for the other 10 days. And all of those big markers of damage just completely disappeared. The first night I snored 30 minutes, big improvement over four hours. Mm -hmm. but three days later, neither he and I were snoring at all. Mm. We didn't have sleep apnea. Our heart rate variability soared, you know, oxygenation increased, like on, on and on and on. This is a free thing that anyone can do is learn how to breathe through your nose and, and the benefits are really profound. If the benefits are so profound, and if people have been practicing breathing techniques for thousands of years, then why do we know so little about them? Why do the lessons get lost generation after generation? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. It's 1946, and choir conductor Carl Stowe is trying out a new technique with his singers. For years, he's watched them belt out a few notes, then gasp for air, then sing a few more. It occurs to him that singing, like talking or laughing, happens on the exhale. People have weak voices because their exhalations are weak. If they can learn to exhale better, they'll strengthen their diaphragms, their lungs will get bigger, and they'll have more power and control. The technique works. In fact, Stowe becomes so successful, he's hired by the Metropolitan Opera, where he trained singers through most of the 1960s. But he doesn't stop there. In the East Orange Hospital across the Hudson in New Jersey, Stowe sees dozens of patients laid out on gurneys. Their skin is yellow and pale, and their mouths gape open like grounded fish. Oxygen hardly helps. Many are waiting to die. The patients have emphysema. They can't get the stale air out of their lungs. What if Stowe could get them to fully exhale? So the first thing he does is remove the cushions that are propping them up, inadvertently arching their chests. Then as they lie flat on their backs, he teaches them how to exhale deeply and very slowly. With more stale air going out, more good air can come in. The change is dramatic. For the first time in years, patients can speak full sentences on a single breath. Some are able to walk again, before and after x-rays show much more lung capacity in just a matter of weeks. And so Stowe turns his attention to another group of people with challenges breathing. This is the beautiful capital of Mexico. He becomes a trainer for the U.S. track team at the 1968 Summer Olympics, held at altitude in Mexico City. They go on to win more than a dozen medals. Lee Evans wins the gold in both the 400 meters and the 400 meter relay. There's a famous photo of him at the award ceremony in a Black Panther beret raising his fist. Evans says proper exhalation kept him from tiring in the thin air. 
But you don't have to be an opera singer or an emphysema patient or a world-class runner to benefit from better breathing. You know, the thing that I find astounding just in the last couple weeks of reading your book and being much more tuned into my own breathing is how breathing is this kind of pivot point between our conscious control of our bodies and our autonomic kind of involuntary bodily responses. And I mean, I remember when my kids were younger and one of them said, you know, if you don't get me that ice cream, I'm going to hold my breath until I die. To which I said, well, technically that's impossible because if you were actually able to hold your breath until you lost consciousness, your, your parasympathetic nervous system would take over and you would breathe calmly and you'd come back to consciousness. But it almost strikes me that it's this, when we think of the dials we can turn and the levers we can pull to control our bodies, right? That breathing turns out to be this incredibly powerful tool that's been kind of like hiding in plain sight right? Mm -hmm. That we have all these fight or flight responses. We have all these, I guess the parasympathetic would be the calming, soothing responses. And all of those are turn out to be entirely within our control simply through modifying breathing patterns. Yeah. If you think about food, we know that food is going to affect us differently. It's going to affect our metabolism, right? You eat a bunch of sugar, you're going to get hyper. You eat some pasta or something, you'll probably get sleepy within half an hour. And before a big run, you're going to eat a certain way because if you don't, you're going to run out of energy. So that seems to be pretty well acknowledged. But my argument, what I've learned from these researchers is breathing is an even more powerful tool because it's instantaneous. So if right now, if people were to like take an inhale to a count of about two and then exhale as long as you can to 12 or even 15, if you can go that long, you're going to feel your heart rate. You can put your hand over your heart if you want. Just slow down. Just get slower and slower and slower. And if at the end of that exhale, you want to hold your breath, it's going to continue to get slower and slower. So that is a response of the parasympathetic nervous system just by breathing this certain way. So just to know you have that, all the time you can carry that with you. And the more tools you have, in my opinion, the better off you are. You call the people who've been exploring the art and science of better breathing pulmonots, which I love. Was pulmonots your term? Yes. I, I was trying to figure out a name for these people. Like the ancients, I wouldn't call them breath researchers. I wouldn't call them pulmonologists, you know? So I was trying to figure out an umbrella term that they all fit in. It's people who had sincere and deep interest in breathing and also went so far as to measure it and use it to do many different things. For thousands and thousands of years, there was nothing fringy about it. This was a, a medicine for Chinese culture, for Hindu culture. The earliest yoga was a breathing technology. There was no movement in it. It was all about breathing. So throughout the ages, people were still interested in the last few centuries, but it fell into this no man's land. This is what this 1950s scientist said, that it's in this gray zone between anatomy and physiology, and no school has claimed it as their own. And my father-in-law is a pulmonologist, so I said, this guy is going to know more about breathing than anyone. But it's not true. He's, he's an expert at the pathologies of the lungs. So if you have cancer, if you have a big problem, he's the guy. And, you know, thank God for pulmonologists. <laughs> they can really resuscitate us in so many ways, get us back to health. But so much of this book and this research, he had never heard about. Well, so when we think about some of the most colorful pulmonots, Katerina Scroff 
is kind of an extraordinary story, right? She's 16 years old. She's bent over and misshapen with a severe case of scoliosis. And she's basically told there's no hope. Was that more or less how it started? That's right. So we had believed for a long time that whatever lungs that we had, we were stuck with our whole life. Like lung capacity was not something we could really use to change the physical structure of our body. And what's sad is the older you get, the more your lungs shrink up. By the time a, a woman is 80, she has the the lung capacity of someone who's 15 years old. So right when we need it the most. But Schroth had been diagnosed with scoliosis. And back then, this is in the 1900s, people with scoliosis, it's like, here's your wheelchair, here's your bed, have a good life. That was it. So she had different thoughts about her body. And she had been really interested in balloons, which is so quaint and kind of sweet. And she she watched the way the balloons inflated and deflated. And she said, the lungs, we've got two balloons inside of our bodies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and an and adult has six liters of air, which is huge. So what if she were to inhale and exhale in ways to expand those lungs and change the skeletature of, of her spine, of her body? So for two or three years, she was breathing in these ways and stretching in these ways, breathing into one lung and then the other lung, focusing on straightening her spine. And she was able to do this. What was even more remarkable is she then went on and started teaching hundreds of other women how to do this. And once again, here's her arc. Repeatedly, they tried to shut her down. They said, you're a quack. You need to go away. We know how to treat these women. She told them to sod off, kept doing what she was doing in a great turnaround. So there is hope. After doing this for 60 years, she was awarded a medal by the German government for her contributions in medicine. And this comes up with other pulmonots, and it begs the question, why is there this resistance? And all throughout two possibilities, you may have other thoughts. I mean, one is that pretty consistently, these folks were non-doctors, right? who had discovered this, or some of the more colorful cases anyway. And so there's resistance often by the medical establishment to outsiders. But maybe there's also a concern that breathing is just too simple. I mean, it, it's too simple of a solution. The solution can't be that easy. Or perhaps a cynic would say, it's too difficult to bottle it and charge extravagant fees for it, right? What do you think are the factors that cause resistance to these discoveries? This is something I've thought about for the last few years, because especially when, yeah, some of these people weren't doctors, right? But then everything they did was checked out by doctors. It was measured by doctors who maybe the majority of them called style, for instance, a quack. But the people who ran the hospitals, the administration, the heads of pulmonology at all of these top VA hospitals, they got behind Stow and said what he's doing is totally real. You know, we could get really crass and say there's no money to be made in breathing, which might possibly be true in some areas. But I think it more has to do with these stories are so remarkable that the first reaction from most doctors is this is BS. You are very respectful of the science, of the importance of randomized controlled testing, mm -hmm. right? Even though some of this is anecdotal, but there is a lot that has been tested. How do you think about where we are in the process of scientifically validating this sort of core thesis? 
there's a lot of empirical studies and some anecdotes and all that. But everything I've told you so far is absolutely solid. Stanford's been studying this stuff for over 50 years. Harvard's been studying this stuff for 50 years. These people are still out there and all of their studies are still out there. That's why on my site, I knew some of the stuff was going to be hard to believe. So I put all 500 and whatever references up there that anyone anywhere can go and look at those. And in some of the really more extraordinary claims, there's videos, there's x-rays, and there's pictures. I spent months talking to them and looking at the data. And again, these aren't fringy folks. These are some of the top research institutions in the world that had been studying this stuff for decades. So it made it even more confounding that people wouldn't accept this. And it wasn't until about six months ago that I read this book, or at least part of this book, by Thomas Kuhn, this philosopher, where he explains how science really works. And he's like, in a perfect world, we think that science moves forward just with the accumulation of data, mm -hmm. right? The more data you get, science is a straight line totally false. So, so many things have to be working together. There has to be a cultural shift that's happening and a different way of looking at things in order for science to change. So it may take a while for the scientific community to fully recognize the importance of breathing. But in the meantime, there's plenty we can do right now to breathe better. If you're enjoying this conversation with James Nestor, why not take a deep breath and become a member of the Next Big Idea Club? That's right. We're more than just a podcast. We're a community of readers and writers who share the best new thinking in psychology, productivity, business, and creativity. Every season, our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Dan Pink, select the best new nonfiction books, and we send them to you along with videos from the authors that let you absorb the key ideas in just minutes. To check it out for three months absolutely free, visit nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. That's nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. Call me self-interested, but for me, the big practical question for James Nestor is how should I be breathing? What changes can I make to my breathing habits to improve my health and perhaps even my singing and my running and my ability to swim under ice? I am a perfect case study of a fixer-upper because I had severe allergies as a child. As a result, I think I just learned to breathe through my mouth both day and night probably. And so I've um, taken a great interest and in the last two weeks have begun to apply this. But for our listeners, how would you go about it? So I'm going to throw an obligatory caveat out here right now. I'm not a breathing therapist, everyone. I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to prescribe anything to anybody. Having said that, researching the subject for years and years, I picked up a few tricks. 
That's how I try to organize the book is the central part of it is what is the foundation of healthy breathing that everyone can benefit from? Doesn't matter if you're asthmatic, emphysemic, if you're healthy, if you're a triathlete, doesn't matter. So nasal breathing, which we got into pretty deep before, mm -hmm. have to breathe through your nose. That's just how it is. If your nose is plugged, you have to find a way of opening it up. So a long exhale. And by that, I mean, so many of us are used to... <gasps> Packing air on top of air over and over and over, especially when we're anxious or when we're working out. But to breathe most efficiently, you have to get that stale air out of your body before you get that new air in. This is what Stau focused on, this art of exhalation. So by breathing lower and deeper breaths, you're able to do more with less, which brings us to the next little lesson is to breathe slowly and to also breathe less than you think you need to, which sounds so counterintuitive. You're like, I need more oxygen. Oxygen yep. is good. You will be getting more oxygen breathing through your nose and by breathing less by breathing deeper lungs full of air, by focusing these breaths and using what's in that breath instead of constantly consuming more and more and more. And when you say breathe less, we're breathing less frequently, fewer breaths per minute, but we're breathing more deeply. And I think you said that nasal breathing results in a 20% increase in oxygen delivery, right? So it's fewer breaths, but we're using more of our diaphragm, we're inhaling more deeply. Absolutely. And the diaphragm is not just used to open up those lungs and back. The diaphragm is pushing against organs. It's used by the lymph system. It's used by other nerves. It's used by the nervous system. So having those deep breaths is really essential to keep your body working properly. And we see what happens when we're not able to take those deep diaphragmatic breaths. We're struggling to breathe 25,000 times a day. And so the optimal length, I mean, I actually tried this with a stopwatch. I mean, I think it's useful for listeners to actually just try out what that optimal breathing cycle is. So is it five and a half seconds? Yeah. And don't freak out people about being the half second off. I've gotten so many emails of people like, what if you're a half second off when you're breathing? No, the point is to relax yourself. So five to six seconds, even if it's four and a half to six and a half or seven seconds mm -hmm. in and out at that same rate, but keep them the same. If you want to become more relaxed, extend the exhale. If you want a little boost of energy, extend the inhale. But we want to be balanced most of the time. James, I'm feeling more relaxed right now because I've been practicing <laughs> my six seconds. And so that would be five or six breaths a minute. That's right. So it's a slow pace and both in and out through the nose. Yes. It can take weeks, which is why so many people give up. They said, there's no way. It's not working for me. But stick with it. And another added benefit is you're increasing your nitric oxide, which is very good at increasing circulation and fighting off viruses. So nowadays, that's especially important. Plus, you look better breathing through your nose. So for me, the breathing through the nose as a normal practice, it feels so good to breathe only five mm -hmm. or six times a minute. It's so relaxing. You're also getting more oxygen to your brain. To me, that's a relatively easy or a very happy shift. Shifting to breathing through my nose and taking probably deeper breaths when running or exercising, that for me has been more challenging. When your mouth is open and you're exercising, it's just very easy to as your heart rate is increasing, mm -hmm. you know, to sort of adjust your oxygen flow, you have to, it reminds me of meditating. Mm -hmm. You focus on the practice and then you fail and you stray and then you start again. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my experience of breathing through my nose when I'm running. 
Well, when you do that, you're going to probably notice like a little heat at the back of your neck. You're going to notice maybe your fingers are getting warmer. And again, you're increasing your CO2 just slightly, which is a good thing because you need CO2 to easily dislodge oxygen into your tissues and muscles. So even though it feels like you're going to need to breathe more, that need to breathe is not dictated by a lack of oxygen. It's dictated by an increase of CO2. And this is something so few people understand. I certainly didn't understand years ago. And we can expect this over time to improve our athletic performance, which in my case is an opportunity that there's room for improvement. Huge, huge pluses in doing this. Some really extreme forms of this, they found that it was equivalent to altitude training. So you build blood, you can boost your VO2 max by breathing this way. I mean, the list goes on and on. And athletes who have discovered how to do this, and there are many, and you can find them online. There's a few in the book. They have had such profound benefits in their performance and their endurance and their recoveries, and they've sworn off ever mouth breathing again. And what's interesting to me is it's not just psychosomatic, it's measurable what's happening to them. And so it applies to not just them, but to everybody. And again, this is a tool, you don't need to buy this on Amazon. This is something you're already doing all the time. Well, and if any of our listeners need more convincing one thing I found quite remarkable is the correlation between lung capacity and longevity. There were two different studies that you cite, mm -hmm. right? One, there was the Framingham survey mm -hmm. of thousands of people over decades, longevity studies, or longitudinal studies rather, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. another one done at the University of Buffalo. Mm -hmm. Thousands of people studied over decades and showed that of all the different indicators, lung capacity was the best predictor of longevity and it is precisely this kind of slower, much deeper breathing that increases lung capacity, right? And apparently the average person is only using 10% of the diaphragm when breathing, right? Which ends up putting all the stress on the heart. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's an extreme, like 10% is pretty low, but that wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. You know, I'd say you and I maybe are using 25% or, you know, maybe 30%. Okay. But just by extending that diaphragmatic movement to 40% or 50%, you're going to be affecting the the rib cage, you're going to be allowing your lungs to continue at that healthy size as you go older and older, as that entropy starts happening. You can reverse that, and, and we know that. And I thought the Framingham study was fascinating as well because they weren't even supposed to be studying lung capacity. <laughs> they were studying heart health, but lung capacity kept popping up. And they said, Lung capacity, vital capacity is equivalent to living capacity. That's what the main researcher said there. And having spent years in this field and learning from so many wonderful scientists and clinicians, I really believe that breathing is as powerful as diet and as genetics. And it's something that at any age we can choose to focus on and really reap the benefits from. Well, so fascinating, James. Thank you so much. Might you uh, be up for taking us through a breathing exercise of some kind as a final piece of this? Well, the five and a half, you know, in five and a half out, it's a good one. But if you're about to go to bed, and just to be clear, I do not want to put myself in the pants of a breathing therapist, someone who's studied this stuff. Uh, this is just stuff I've learned from these pros in the field. But if before going to sleep or trying to relax, you can take a breath in to a count of about four. 
three, four. Hold for seven, three, four, five, six, seven. Exhale softly for eight, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Inhale to four and follow that pattern, this four, seven, eight breathing. Mm. And this is going to lull yourself into that state of real relaxation. I used to use this when I used to fly all the time, use this on flights to go to sleep. I still use it now. And it's this wonderful little trick you can do that you can just carry along with you. You don't need written instructions or anything. You have it in your brain and you can use it whenever you want. Wonderful. Well, James Nestor, thank you so much for your time. I fear we might have exposed you to some mouth breathing during this conversation, but we are grateful for it and really, really appreciate uh, your insights on how we can all become better breathers. Fantastic. Thank you. What great questions, man. I haven't had an interview like this in a long time, so really appreciate the thoughtfulness. From Wondery, this is the next big idea. If you have thoughts about breath or any of the other books in our series, we'd love you to join the conversation with me, James Nestor, and other writers at nextbigideaclub.com. It's a lively community of lifelong learners where you can interact with top nonfiction writers and get audio, video, and text summaries of their key ideas. Sign up for three months free at nextbigideaclub.com slash podcasts. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Wondery app, or wherever you're listening right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app to listen ad-free. In the episode notes, you'll find some links and offers from our sponsors. Please support them. And special thanks this week to James Nestor. His book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, is available wherever books are sold, or you can get a copy for free when you join us at nextbigideaclub.com. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. This episode was written by Laura Rossbrow-Tellum. Sound designed by Jake Gorski. Our associate producer is Caleb Bissinger. Our series producer is Michael Cobnot. Senior producer is Jonathan Miller. Executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.